Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, we try to find some investment ideas following Square's proposed takeover of Afterpay. And we do that with Prime Values ST Wong. He looks at the potential digital disruptors, which are eating the big boys' lunches, especially in the banking space. And he pinpoints some miners who will do well in the new age of electric vehicles and of course, battery technology. Technology. Then we meet the CEO of the listed company Straker Translations, which has had a good 12 months on the stock market. But what is the future of this company? And then Ying Yi and Cheng looks at what's happening with interest rates. And Michelle May tells us what a buyer's agent is seeing in the property sector with the imposition of lockdowns. That's the show. So let's kick off with ST1 from Prime Day. And first up, we're talking to St. Wong, the portfolio manager at Prime Value. How are you, mate? I'm good, Pete. Keeping well in Melbourne. Yeah, lucky you in Melbourne, <laughs> uh, which is something we haven't been able to say for quite some time. Now, mate, I wanted to talk to you first of all about what the afterpay takeover by Square really means, and you know, is there an important lesson for investors? coming out of this particular story. So why don't you give, give us your take on what this Afterpay story tells us? Yeah, absolutely, Pete. Um, really interesting um, acquisition by Square, but I think it kind of um, encapsulates what it's all about in, in that space, which is really about, I guess, in many ways, intersection of, between software and payments. Um, a lot of uh, changes happening in the payment space globally, also touching Australia. But the two key points that stuck out for me where Square and Afterpay is concerned um, is really um, distribution, which Square is best in class, and product innovation, which what Afterpay has shown itself um, as uh, great in terms of being, uh, I guess, stars of the uh, buy now, pay later, later space. So the combination of Square and Afterpay, I think, kind of encapsulate this intersection of what's happening in payments and really the engagement between software, the consumer, and uh, the merchants or the seller in, in this respect. So a lot of changes I'm anticipating to happen in that space, not just within the buy now, pay later, later space, but um, how do the incumbents, the banks themselves, react to this disruption? So that's an interesting space uh, that I think will play out for a longer term. Okay, we'll, we'll go to that, the fear of the banks and disruption in a moment, but a question I've been getting and, and a question a lot of people like you would have been considering is, well, okay, Afterpay has been given this large uh, valuation, do we now go and look at Zip and think, well, you know, that, does it have the, the potential to be um, chased by other organisations that compete with Square or whatever? Have you you know, put your grey matter around that particular question, um, ST? Yeah, it's a hard one to actually pinpoint, Pete, because um, the life cycle of each of these players are quite different in themselves. So to actually put a, say, a multiple on revenue, for example, on Zip or OpenPay, for example, which is larger in, in, in Britain, it's quite challenging. It really boils down to what the value proposition that each of these players will bring 
to the players themselves. So you might be able you know, apply multiple what uh, Afterpay has uh, been acquired for on Zip and kind of uh, assume perhaps a discount or premium to where you think each player is positioned to. It gives you a relative sense of valuation, but it doesn't actually give you an absolute sense whether the combination of say Zip and someone else uh, actually makes sense because it all really depends on the outcomes. And in this case, I think a Square and Afterpay combination has got tremendous potential still to be realized, of course, that will come in the next couple of years. Um, and it really boils down to what sort of combination that Zip might come up with if they do get acquired or if they do merge with someone else. So it does put a spotlight into this space, but it's a, still a challenge trying to actually put a valuation on the sector per se. That's my take on, on, on itself. So if I were in the box seat of trying to make a um, decision whether I should be buying after pay or someone cheaper such as Zip, my sense is I'd go for the best in class. And in this case, the combination of Square and Afterpay seems pretty compelling in my view. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking that if you look at Square's number one local rival, that's Tyro. Tyro and Square mm. compete in the same kind of space. And then... You know, so therefore, there may well be a, a lot of um, good sense of Tyro and Zip connecting up, which would give them strength in the local market, wouldn't necessarily help them in the external market. But I'm, I'm just wondering whether people at Tyro would be thinking, well, you know, if, if Square's going to leverage off all the afterpay customer base here in Australia, we may well need a bit of support. And therefore, Tyro is probably the perfect one to go for. Absolutely. My inclination from you know two years back when kind of Tyro came on to the ASX is that it probably would make a ideal partner for Square within Australian market. You know mm -hmm. payments, um, uh, you know land grab by Tyro, and that's what kind of what Square is doing as well. The limitation of where Tyro is concerned is that it is still one largely Australian base. Um, what Square does bring to the game is that it has shown itself to be a best-in-class company where product innovation is concerned. You look at its ability to launch and quickly scale uh, products offering. That's been spectacular, mm. um, which Tyra is still uh, yet to demonstrate that capability. So, so there is still a big difference between what Square and what Tyro uh, is. Uh, in combination to a buy now, pay later uh, player in, in that sense. Okay. Using the, the, the information you provide around digital disruption and the threat to banks, uh, are there any companies out there that you think, A, may well already be liked by the market, but have much more potential for their share prices to go higher? Well, I kind of extend this thematic to what's happening in the specialist uh, wealth management platform space as well. Um, the likes of Hub, uh, NetWealth and Premium, now they have been biting into um, the big wealth manager space, the likes of AMP, uh, BT, um, as well to some extent Macquarie, less so, but the incumbents in that space have been settled with old technology and you're seeing a lot of new players, you know, such as Hub, NetWealth, Premium, um, coming to the market and quickly getting a large share of the inflows into platforms for superannuation and investments. So same thematic, disrupting the incumbents by bringing technology, innovation, 
and in some cases, very strong distribution capabilities. So in that space, you know, we see similar thematics in the likes of Hub, NetWell, but what stands out for me is a comp company called Premium. Um, Premium is one of the smaller places in the market. Um, I think it is probably quite um, well positioned to be acquired by one of the bigger players by virtue of the fact that this becomes a scale game um, where technology is concerned, where distribution is concerned, and that looks fairly attractive for me, where distribution and consolidation is concerned, um, that's applied in the buy now, pay, pay later space uh, at this juncture. Okay, so let's move out to something totally different, namely the miners. And I'm not sure if I've ever heard you talk about investing in miners. Uh, a, have you? And B, do, do you think the, um, the, the miners have some interesting opportunities? Clearly, BHP, Roy, and all of them are near uh, yeah, price to perfection, but are there, are there smaller miners that it may well be leveraged to the new world that you think mm. actually have value? Absolutely. I think what's hot is obviously decarbonization, uh, green technology, and that's offering a lot of opportunity in, um, I guess, uh, specialist uh, metals, the likes of lithium, which is currently really, really uh, hot and exciting. Uh, I've invested through uh, mineral resources as a lithium play. Um, we felt that it was undervalued. It's lithium assets in WA at that point uh, when we when we invested. So that's my proxy, I guess, to the green or decarbonization theme, but also more increasingly is copper. Mm. Now, copper, I think, is really poised to do really well over the medium to long term by virtue of not just decarbonization and, or green technology, which, uh, which is going to be really strong, but also the fact that global growth is going to continue for the next couple of years. Mm. I think that's beyond doubt. Um, and copper, I think, is one of those commodities where it is supply constrained, right? So that's an added uh, dimension where I think the miners will come in from, from my perspective, looks interesting uh, from, from, from where I sit in a medium to long term. Now, I have holdings in companies such as mineral resources for a variety of reasons, of which uh, lithium is one of those, but also on companies such as uh, Aus Minerals which I think is really well managed, um, has exposure to copper, uh, but its balance sheet is also really, really strong. So, so from my perspective, that's one company which sits really well uh, for me in the medium to long term. Now, I know that copper price is probably at its highs, as its peaks at this juncture. So there are some concerns that copper price might actually come off or roll off in the short term. That might affect the share price of Oz Minerals, but if that's the case, I'll be probably be adding to my position where some of these miners are concerned. I hold BHP. That's because the cash flow of the company is just so strong, but at the same time, I'm cautious on our portfolio prices. Yeah, well, you're the second expert in the week that said that like copper and Oz Minerals. So yeah, there's a, a strong move towards it. ST Wong, thanks for joining us on the program. Great to see you. Thanks, Pete. Take care. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. 
With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Joining me now is the CEO of Straker Translations, a listed company in the AI space. They've had a pretty good year and uh, I'd like to see why and also what's the outlook for the company. Grant Straker, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Peter. Nice to be here. For people who haven't come across you guys before, we don't really do um, you know, unknown companies so much, but I don't mind introducing occasional companies so people can at least have a look at uh, operations like yours. Tell us what Stroker Translations precisely does. So we're basically in, operate in the in the global localization industry, which is an enormous industry. So it, it's it's more than fifty billion dollars uh, in size, which is double the the, the music uh, global music industry. It's nearly as big as the mobile game, gaming industry. So it's a very significant industry, and it's going through change. AI. Is, is having an impact because it's making humans more productive if you do it the right way, which is which is the way that we do it. Um, and it's consolidating. So it's it's thousands of vendors that the top 100 companies only make up 18% of the industry. So it's a huge opportunity. And what we figured out a decade ago was that as um, machines make humans more productive, you will be able to leverage that in a commercial sense for the benefit of your customers and for your own benefits. And uh, the way we see that play out is, is um, we, uh, we we offer better value to our customers, but we also make higher gross margins than the rest of the industry. So that's how our technology plays out. And uh, in effect, we we have a big crowd of humans. Uh, we have uh, machines that are um, helping to automate the process and do a first pass translation, and then a, a big crowd of thousands of humans that then create that. So that, that's in a simplistic way, but it, there's a lot more that goes on, believe okay. me. I think the best way of understanding it um, would be to give us an example of a, of a major customer. I know you've worked with some really big names around the world and what you actually do for them. So people who are thinking about your company think, oh yeah, I can see that. I can see this guy potential. So give us a, a classic example of a company that people might know and what you've done for them. Yeah, so, so there are, um, as I say, there's a range of different uh, industries and organisations. It's a company that maybe uh, people do or don't know, depending on, there's a company called Mitotoya, which I think is a good example. It's a large Japanese company that make um, micrometers and digital measuring, measuring stuff. Now, I, I really didn't know uh, Mitotoya until I actually had to get um, uh, a, 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 something, uh, a, a tool for my boat, and I suddenly discovered that uh, <clears throat> they, they made them. But what they do is they... They operate right around Europe, for example, in 20-something countries. And every, every month they put out a brochure which has got all of their new measuring instruments uh, and, all the, and all their specials. And, and, and it's, you know, uh, maybe a 20-pages uh, document. And so what they need to have done every month is this translated into 20 or 30 different languages. Um, and uh, there's lots of technical terms in there. There's lots of um, graphical input that has to be fitted in around the text. And so we'll automate taking that source language document, uh, putting it through a process so that uh, all the content can be extracted, it can be translated, uh, and then stitched back together in that document, ready to be distributed around uh, very quickly. So that, that's one example, and, and that enables them to, to reach a far greater audience in, in the audience's language, which is improving their sales. So that, that's one, one example. So as I'm listening to that, it reminds me of those times when people have you know read um, 
another foreign country's interpretation of an English guide and the English is kind of funny and, and misplaced and whatever. I guess in a perfect world, you guys can um, translate into different languages without that, that kind of amusing observations. Uh, correct. And, and look, quality was an issue. I think quality now is not the main driver in this. And that's why there's 20,000 different companies around the world, because they build up a trust relationship with their customer on quality. And what you're seeing now is that speed and automation and productivity are the big drivers and the big decisions that people will be making on purchasing. So, um, you know, uh, we've won this global uh, partnership deal with, with IBM, for example. And and, and for them, it's very much not about picking size or the security of existing sort of um, uh, providers, but actually going with the right technology solution that's going to enable them to take on the world on their customers' terms. Right. Anyone who's watching this might go and look at the chart. And uh, if you look at the five-year chart, you basically were at good levels. Everyone got, everyone got smashed in the coronavirus you basically bounced back to where you were before the coronavirus. You reported pretty well, and now you've gone on. You, the, the market's picked on you over the last two months. Is there a good reason why the market has um, gone against you? Oh, not really. And I, I don't know if it's it's really gone against us. I think if you look at the volumes, they're, they're quite low. It's not. You, you get retail that, that that do get a little bit. They want a bit more action and a bit more news. I think. If you go back to what we've said this year, like we've said we've given guidance of 50 million up from you know um, 30, 31 million, right? So that's pretty significant, right? And we're uh, and we're not burning a lot of money to get there. Um, uh, we've got some really really significant growth. I think the market are just waiting for us uh, quarter on quarter to deliver to, to show that that growth is coming through. Um, now, obviously, we wouldn't have given her that that guidance if we weren't confident on those those numbers. Um, so, so I think it's just, uh, yeah, probably represents a bargain. I think for people that, that we've given that guidance and has has that been um, priced in, I, th I think, in the mindset. If you look at the institutions, uh, the large institutions, uh, you know, that, that came in on our last capital raise, they're all still there pretty much. Um, so I think it's just retail uh, that's, that's driving that. And it's profit-taking as well, because as I say, you had a good year until... And then, and the pullback is a lot less than the rise on the other side of the um, the trend line. One last question then is when when do you officially report? Uh, so we're a New Zealand uh, financial year end, so we're a March year end. So our, our half year will be uh, end of September, so October, no, no, normally November, we would report our half year, um, and then our full year. Uh, it's 31st of March, so it's normally April, April, May. So we're a little bit out of cycle, um, but that's quite useful because when, when the Australian reporting season's full on, it, it gives people a, uh, a chance to have a look at us when they're sort of out of cycle. Great stuff. Well, Grant, good luck with it. Um, and I hope you guys do well in the future. Thank you very much, Peter. Great to be on the show. Well, joining me now is Yingyi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital, and she is the portfolio manager for the Switzer Higher Yield Fund. Yingyi, great to see you. Great to see you, Pete. Okay, so um, people are getting a little bit worried about the stock market, coronavirus, the, the, the bond market, the yields have been falling lately, and of course, Doomsday Merchants seize upon this, hoping to 
know, get that crash that they've been praying for for, for a long time. Um, so you're the right person to ask these questions. So what is the bond market saying about the coronavirus, Delta strain, and the a possible economic slowdown? Yeah, that's definitely been been factored in. So bonds are rallying off the back of this. And, you know, I, I suppose, you know, that is a, a good reflection in that respect because it does convey the fact that, okay, expectations are, you know, lower rates. Um, and, you know, that's because we need to put in some sort of a similar, well, at least the RBA needs to put in some sort of a simulatory sort of a, a measure in order to support the economy while we're going through lockdown. And obviously the implications of both, you know, the New South Wales and Victorian lockdowns have, you know, profound sort of impacts on economic growth and GDP. Obviously, you know, subject to, um, you know, the, you know, I suppose the economy reopening again, obviously we shall get uh, a bounce back, but that's not something that's probably expected until, you know, um, earliest in at the end of the year in the last quarter. Yeah. Okay. So your colleague, Chris Joy, um, was fantastic in predicting us getting on top of the coronavirus and the fact that a vaccine would come much more before most people did. Um, so what is his market crystal ball saying right now about the implications of this? Because sure, the bond market is responding to what might happen over the next quarter or two, uh, but even you implied in that answer that maybe around the end of the year, we, we, we should see a rebound if the vaccination program does well. What is Chris saying to you guys in your meetings with him? Well, I mean, look, a lot of our, our views, um, you know, are very centred upon, you know, RBA QE, uh, which is quantitative easing, i.e. their bond purchases. And, you know, really our view around, you know, rate hikes um, in the future is not something that we expect until, you know, at least 20 23, um, we expect that the RBA will continue to do to be doing bond purchases well into 2022. Um, and the RBA actually announced in their July meeting so earlier this month that they would move to a more flexible um, you know, stance on quantitative easing. And they did suggest that they would, you know, reduce purchases from you know $5 billion to $4 billion a week. Um, However, you know, as we expected, that July meeting decision to reduce it from $5 billion to $4 billion was a very marginal call. And it feels like it could have gone the other way as well. Um, and the whole emphasis for them has been on flexibility, right? So, you know, in, in the case of, you know, pre-New South Wales lockdown, pre-Victorian lockdown, going from $5 billion to $4 billion would have made a lot of sense. But you could argue that, you know, given what we're going through now, there is probably a strong case to not necessarily, you know, reduce from $5 billion to $4 billion. Um, and in fact, you know, there are certain banks that are saying that, you know, due to the impact of these lockdowns, the IBA will either backtrack on their table um, at their August meeting coming up, uh, which is the first Tuesday, uh, the 3rd of August, or at least that they say that they are considering that for their September meeting. So, you know, Westpac um, has come out today, for example, they're suggesting that the RBA may actually announce an increase in bond purchases 
to $6 billion per week to provide additional monetary stimulus, um, you know, while large parts of the economy are frozen. So, you know, I would say that we agree that this is a possibility, um, you know, as is the RBA deciding to increase the proportion of state government bonds that they are buying relative to the Commonwealth government bonds, for example. And, and you guys would be happy about that because you kind of thought that the, the RBA going for what I call the tiny taper from five down to four billion was a, maybe a little bit too soon? Yeah, I, look, I mean, as you know, as emphasised, you know, it's always been a flexible point of view. Um, we th actually felt that the five billion to four billion made did make a lot of sense, um, and that's taking into account the fact that you know, had the RBA continued at their five billion dollars per week pace, um, you know, given that versus the backdrop of reduced Commonwealth bond issuance and reduced issuance from some of the states, um, you know before, uh, beforehand, then, you know, had they been continuing at the same pace, they would have actually been buying more uh, bonds than was, you know, issued in terms of their target, right? So 4 billion is just commensurate with that fall in issuance. But obviously we're in a slightly different situation a couple of weeks later um, with the New South Wales lockdown. So, you know, as was always emphasized, flexibility is the key here. Okay, one last question, and you know how I love to make you look into the crystal ball and make big predictions, and I know you don't like doing it, but too bad, you're qualified to do it. So my question is, will a bigger and better vaccination rate overseas and here as well ultimately lead to a more confident bond market, and eventually we'll see yields probably rising maybe around the time you're suggesting, you know, end of the year when things look better? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the key point there would be, yes, vaccination rates and definitely that, uh, you know, improvements in vaccination rates will have, you know, a strong sort of knock-on effect in terms of hoisting sort of confidence around, you know, borders reopening and therefore economic activity. Um, and so in that respect, I, I think the, the bond market will, you know, progressively have to factor that into account. Um, obviously, you know, high yields is actually not good for fixed rate bonds. It's good for floating rate notes, which is, you know, that part of the market where we're focused on, we're focused on, you know, running floating rate portfolios. So as rates move higher, but, um, you know, on the back of, you know, better growth, um, better economic conditions overall, that actually benefits us. So yeah, like, that is something that we are, quite confident about over time. Um, albeit, you know, we know that Australia started um, its vaccination path, you know, belatedly. However, it looks like we are on track um, and are, you know, progressing at the same sort of linear phase as, you know, some of the other sort of key developed countries that we consider to be peers. Um, and so, you know, our house view is that eventually borders will reopen in um, Q2 next year following, you know, a, a possible election in March. And that's off the back of, you know, Australia reaching herd immunity um, in January or February next year. Great stuff. Yee, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete.
Well, we're joined now by Michelle May of Michelle May Buyers Agents. And uh, I want to talk to her about in an age when we're buying houses online, what are the things we need to know? Michelle, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, nice to be here. Um, how popular is online auctions becoming nowadays? Well, it depends who you ask, really, uh, because I do know from uh, talking to real estate agents, selling agents, they're not that keen uh, because there is quite a bit of hesitancy still around the results. I know vendors tend to be quite nervous around it. Um, from buyers, there, you know, there's nervous uh, nervousness around the tech side of things, but I do think there can be an advantage to bidding online for buyers in this market. Yes, I can. I know I've interviewed people who've had difficulty demuting their microphone. Imagine <laughs> missing out on the house which you simply couldn't get heard. Yeah, that is one of the risks for sure. Uh, because there's all these different platforms available, um, such as Auction Now, Gavel, but also just simple Zoom uh, and Google Meet. Uh, depending on what the agent chooses, I think it's important to do your research prior to um, just registering uh, for the property that you're trying to buy. I would, I would definitely attend a few other ones to see what the go is and, and how they run these things because um, whilst we have more experience than obviously last year, uh, it's still a bit of a free-for-all. Um, so definitely get a bit of practice in. Okay. What do you think are the major pitfalls that people need to be aware of? Um, look, in this country, <laughs> internet can sometimes still be a bit, you know, hit and miss. Mm -hmm. uh, so just, I think, the uh, sitting in front of your computer and not actually being part of the action is, is, can be very nerve-wracking. So I think it's, it's important to plan it out really thoroughly in advance. So, um, you know, if you've got patchy internet, potentially think about hotspotting on your phone or doing the actual auction on your phone because all these platforms are, are available on, you know, on smartphones. Um, have the, have the uh, agent's number in your phone as well because I've been at online auctions myself where, you know, the screen freezes or all of a sudden you can't hear them. Uh, so having their number just right there uh, so you can say, hey, listen, guys, uh, hold up. Uh, something's gone wrong is is crucial. Um, I think it's important, depending on the, the platform that you're on, you need to be aware that everyone can see and hear you. So you can't just make it make up your, your bids as you go along because they may hear you talking to your partner. Um, mm -hmm. And that is definitely something you need to be aware of. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I bought my most recent purchase for one of my clients, because the buyers on the other side didn't realize that I could actually hear everything. Yeah, which gives you an insight to how enthusiastic your rival bidders are to go higher. Yeah, yes, true. I don't think um, the enthusiasm of buyers to buy has cooled. Uh, I think what is happening now is that a lot of vendors are holding off putting their property on the market because they are nervous to sell. Uh, online, but also because it is just so much trickier to get all your buyers through your property uh, with the COVID restrictions. You know, every day we are hearing new restrictions now. It's come to the point where anything non-essential, such as styling, 
um, no market appraisals also uh, are not allowed anymore. So, um, you know, the supply is going to dry up and there's always buyers out there ready to buy. So competition is still fierce. Mm. Do you think as a consequence of that, that um, if, say, for example, by spring, I'm thinking <clears throat> late October, early November, if the level of vaccinations are so, you know, has become high enough to assume that lockdowns are over, there may well be an enormous supply of property on the market, which could be a good thing for all those people who've been missing out for a long time. Well, let's hope so, Peter, because it's about time the tables were turned for and give the buyers a bit of an upper hand. But to be honest with you, the, the, the disparity between supply and demand is still so great. It would have to be a huge amount of supply. Um, and even after last year uh, with, with um, you know, with the COVID restrictions then, and then we saw an influx of properties come on the market February, it still wasn't enough. Um, so I think that it really would have to be an external factor, um, such as changing interest rates or other um, outside factors outside of the real estate industry to really significantly change uh, the buyer demand out there and, um, yeah, and, and hopefully get more of an equilibrium. Are there any other problems that people should be aware of? You've identified some really interesting ones, but are there others? Um, so obviously being online, it means that you will also be expected to um, sign online and uh, pay your deposit right there and then because the property gets exchanged on that uh, as soon as you have the deposit and you've signed the contract. So um, check with your bank your daily limit, make sure that it's raised uh, up to that uh, point that you can pay that 5 or 10% deposit. Some banks do take um, a number of days to figure that out. So do do that well in advance and check with the agents how they would like you to pay because there's also options such as Macquarie Auction Deft Pay, um, which is a, a much easier way to pay your deposit. And also check how they would expect you to pay to sign the contract. Uh, it could be DocuSign, but it could, could also be other options. So I think the more you are across of what is going to happen in the event that you are successful, I think the, the more confident you'll be at auction and the higher the likelihood you'll be successful too. Are, are you finding deposit bonds are less or more popular in this online environment where you do need to cough up with the, the, the deposit? Um, we don't come across them that often uh, and quite often when the request is made, the answer is no. Um, so it, it really depends on the vendor situation and the comfortableness of the vendor solicitor around using deposit bonds from a, from a buyer. Uh, but they, they have always, and I, I think they'll always continue to be only a very small portion of the market when it comes to property buying. Okay. Yeah. I know you said the supply of properties uh, is relatively low, which wouldn't be great for your business. But the fact that people are nervous about being online, does that mean that people are actually going to buyers agents for help um, battling the online world? Certainly. Uh, much like last year, uh, our inquiries have gone through the roof uh, because people are realizing that they need help and this is not something they do every day let alone that that added bit of tech and the unsurety of what's about to happen um but 
Similarly uh, to last year, there is a lot more off-market activity happening now uh, because vendors are wary of using the marketing dollars to, do, to publicly display their property online. They're contacting real estate agents and say, okay, I'm, I'm open to selling, but can we do it off-market? And of course, as a buyer's agent, we have those connections in the industry. And last year, for example, we bought about 50% of our properties off market during that COVID period. So the longer this continues, the longer these lockdowns continue, um, the higher the likelihood that more of the property market is going to go off market. And therefore, buyers agents will certainly be more in demand. But um, Michelle, isn't there a problem in the sense that a buyer agent like you and others you know, would really want to go inside the property and really know where this property measures up on the inside as it does on the outside and according to, you know, what was a typical house in that area. Does that cause a bit of a problem for you? Well, absolutely. Um, but at the moment, we, we are still able to do one-on-one -on -one inspections. Um, uh, but there's also the option to do virtual inspections. And obviously, a virtual inspection is not ideal, but it's better than nothing, um, where the agent will walk through the property or the vendor will do a video for us and show us exactly. And we can steer them and say, can you show us the laundry? You know, all those things you typically don't see in the glossy real estate pictures. Mm -hmm. um, as a buyer's agent, I obviously also have access to uh, professional tools such as RP Data and APM Price Finder. And because we have all these systems in place to do our research um, you know we still have these processes that we can carry out when it comes to for example DA checks infrastructure projects um, uh, you know doing research on council websites that still continues uh, and obviously it, it is a little bit slower it is a bit more tricky to get our clients through but I think um, we've learned a lot from last year and uh, you know we're working smarter this this year for sure. Big question, Michelle. Have you been, you guys, been defined as essential workers? Yes, we are. That's correct. Yeah, um, so, I think that is that is part of um, you know keeping uh, people who are in vulnerable positions uh, safe. Uh, I think that is one of the main reasons why we have defined as, as, as essential workers. You are still allowed to move house for the time being. Um, so obviously we've got to be you know, sensible ourselves as well. It's my responsibility to do the right thing uh, for my clients, myself, but also society as a greater good. Um, so I think you know, you've got to be sensible. If there is an option to do it online as opposed to in person, then that will certainly take that route. Okay, great advice, uh, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, pleasure. Now, that was Michelle May. That's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. And remember, if you want to know more about investing in stocks, have a look at the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday night.